Domestic abuse takes many forms. Some abusers repeatedly dictate their partner's choices and control their everyday actions, becoming violent or threatening to become violent if their demands are refused. An abuser may restrict how their partner acquires, uses and maintains money and accommodation, food, clothing and transportation. This behaviour is known as economic abuse. Our guest on today's podcast is an expert in economic abuse and has worked determinedly to ensure women and children who are victim of domestic and economic abuse in the UK have access to help. Welcome, Nicola Sharp. Hello. Now, Nicola, your work helping victims of economic abuse seems much more than just a job here. How accurate is it to say it's a passion and something really close to your heart? I think that would probably be very accurate, actually. Um, It is a passion and it's a life's work. And it all began when I first had contact with victims and survivors of domestic abuse. Um, What I found when they told me about what had happened to them was that economic abuse threaded through everything that they said. So I heard about successful individuals who'd had good jobs and perhaps their own houses, a car, a lot of economic assets, um, a secure future, a pension. And they met somebody who really sought to destroy any economic stability that they did have as part of that wanting to control every aspect of their life. And they did that really to shut down their choices, um, to curtail their freedom and ultimately to stop them from leaving. So in many ways, I think the individuals I spoke to reflected myself and that's when it actually became quite personal because I realised that economic abuse and domestic abuse more broadly could happen to anyone. It seems to be very much sort of entrenched in psychology in that human psychology, isn't it? Of knowing when, when you sort of were a lot younger, when maybe um, your first ever memories, did, did you have an empathy with people and the way they thought? I would actually say it's more about society and um, societal norms and who holds power in society. So actually, for me, my kind of moment where I was aware of that was probably when I um, was at university and really understood a kind of the power of politics. Um, So my first jobs were in policy influencing because I realised that if government chooses to take one direction to respond to an issue and understands it in a certain way, then that might help some people, but it might have a negative impact on other people. So I just saw the real power that policymaking and politicians can have. And I suppose I wanted a job that wasn't necessarily um, corporate in the sense that I wasn't earning lots of money for somebody or I wasn't earning a lot of money for myself. I'm not very materialistic. I wanted to do something that I knew would make a difference to individuals and society more broadly. So it felt like policy was a good place to do that. Right. So this was sort of formative around university years. I would say so. So I took an industrial relations course and um, learned a lot about Thatcherism. And that was kind of my moment where I thought, okay, um, you know, it sounds silly, but just listening to the minor strike and the impact that Um, closing that industry had on communities and individuals um, really resonated with me. Um, Yeah, and I suppose um, connected to that a sense of of human rights and people's need and ability to be able to be self-sufficient and to look after themselves and not have to depend on others. 
much of this was was to do with influence from your family life from from sort of growing up with your parents or, or um, well, my father was a policeman, so um, and in fact, we still kind of come a little bit head to head um, on the issue of domestic abuse because some people simply understand why people don't just leave. They don't understand why they put up with it. Um, and until you have training and you understand the dynamics of domestic abuse, it's really easy to kind of fall into a victim blaming patterns without an understanding of um, how abusers operate and what they do and how they systematically try to reduce choices. So that removing of economic resource, but also isolating victims so they don't have family and friends who can support them, so they don't have the social resource that they need. And also there's a real overlap between economic and psychological abuse as well. So perpetrators will say things like, you can't manage money, you're stupid, you wouldn't be able to survive on your own, you wouldn't be able to manage. And so they actually make the victim feel as if they are quite worthless and that they um, aren't worth anything, which impacts on self-esteem. And again, you need an inner resource um, to have the strength to actually leave. So when all your resources are being taken away in that way, um, it's a real mountain to climb. And I suppose something else which is really important to say is that when people say, well, why don't you just leave? It's actually the most dangerous time because domestic abuse is about control. And if you challenge control, then usually abuse escalates. So it might surprise some listeners to hear that um, around two women a week and one man every five weeks are killed by a current or a former partner. And most of those homicides happen at the point of separation or just after. So leaving um, is a process. Um, Ideally, it needs to be a collaboration between a specialist domestic abuse charity and other institutions, for example, financial institutions that can um, really make a difference and help. So that might be uh, delinking um, a financial product, for example. So, um, you know, changing the address on a joint bank account so that the abuser doesn't find out where someone has fled to, for example, finds a new address. Yeah, it's so funny. That's exactly how we describe it. So um, victims get caught up in a really sort of tangled web Mm. and it becomes very complex. And so the challenges to leave um, are very difficult and it does require a lot of time and resource and commitment um, from professionals to support that process Um, but at the same time even just doing one thing can create a little bit of space Um, we call that space for action Um, so we say the opposite to the control is the space for action I'm intrigued so about you said that you sometimes comes head to head with discussions with your father as well can I ask what what sort of discussions you have with him which create that I think it's generally society's victim blaming response really sadly which is just another challenge for victims so rather than say you know why don't they leave why don't we say you know why is someone abusing someone why don't we kind of name it and call it out and say no one deserves to be abused it's not right on any level Um, you know let's challenge the perpetrator let's challenge the person Mm -hmm. who is abusing rather than focus on the deficiency of the person who's not leaving and not doing this and not doing that is that a sort of familiar comment that you get from more of an older demographic in society it's sort of something that you become entrenched in if if you are older because what the work that you're doing nowadays is actually fairly new isn't it and and It is new work and I would say in some ways we understand economic abuse now in the same way that we did physical abuse about 40 years. So you can see how society shifts and understandings of what's right and wrong do shift and in some ways economic abuse is kind of the last of the forms of abuse to really 
come under this scrutiny. So I am really hopeful that attitudes will shift. And it's really interesting talking to banking professionals who sometimes they would feel that perhaps you need perhaps someone who's a little bit older, um, potentially who's on a customer helpline, who's got a bit of life experience. Um, but actually, sometimes the opposite is true. And actually, younger people who aren't at all judgmental right. can potentially um, be more open to these conversations and more helpful. That's really interesting. Which I found that. really interesting. Yeah. yeah. You would think uh, an older person with you know life experience, but. Mm. I suppose what you're saying is sometimes that can get in the way. Yeah, I think so. Help. Exactly. Um, it's difficult, like, isn't it? Because you've yeah. got that cut you're like, well, where do we go from? Where's the middle ground here? Mm. And I think it's also about empathy and understanding. Um, as an Which can come from anyone. Yeah, it, it yeah. really can. And to you know, really understand an issue and to get it absolutely changes the way that you respond. Mm. And it can be very difficult then to ignore, actually. So... If you do understand domestic abuse, you'll read newspaper articles in a very different way to someone who does. You know, you'll be two lines in and say, oh, you know, this will be a current or a former partner. Um, right. You know, you pick up on things a lot more quickly. So um, it kind of goes back to the issue about society and kind of inequalities and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Um, and the more we question that, um, the less these things are hidden. It's interesting you were saying about economic uh, abuse. It's, it's not something I'd heard of until more recently. But there again, when you sort of headline it um, and the behaviour behind economic abuse, it sort of makes you go, yes, actually, yes. It, I, I can identify that with mm. that. It just needed sort of a title, I suppose, mm. in many ways. You, you commented about it being the, the last in the list. Mm. Do you really think so? Because surely before economic abuse was, was headlined, something previous to that was probably said as the last thing. Maybe, probably because we didn't know what was coming next. So, yeah, I'll probably eat my words. There'll be something that comes after. But I think, again, looking at how this issue has developed from a policy perspective, we saw a response to physical violence, sexual violence. In 2015, we saw some new legislation which challenged psychological abuse. And there's a new domestic abuse bill which names economic abuse for the first time. And so when you say it's really powerful to actually have a name for this, it really is. So a lot of victim survivors come to us and say, you know, there is a name for what I've experienced. That's really empowering. Yes. It makes me yeah. feel that I'm not alone. This isn't my fault and that there is support available. So the power of naming just can't be underestimated. Yeah, definitely. You, you work together you know you don't just work with organizations um, you work with people who are victims at the same time how do you manage yourself personally coping with the emotional side because there is a heavy emotional side isn't it you you can't just distance yourself um we're human beings not robots aren't we at the end of the day how do you how do you manage mm. that I think that's true. I think it's the emotion which fuels the passion and the sense of injustice and unfairness. So I think what somebody's life could have been if it hadn't been for someone who had abused them in that way. So that's kind of what fuels me. And I suppose that's what enables me to contain my emotion. So to have conversations because I see that it makes such a difference to people and I see how they can move forward as a consequence of knowing that people understand what they've been through. Um, I would say how I cope with it, I probably think usually quite well, and then I have moments where I think, oh gosh, something might be said that kind of comes out of nowhere and impacts me. Or I do things like cry hysterically 
when I'm watching a sad film, which is a slight overreaction probably so I do a, a lot of my film watching when I'm on planes and I can see the passenger next to me thinking what is she watching this girl's hysterical but I think it's just finding different outlets so for me it's about um yeah finding a way where I can kind of offload that in a in a safe place and yeah then it leaves you in a better position to keep on going absolutely do you do you you help other people do you find that it's important for you to also have a, a helpline in, in some respects. Um, I think what's really interesting about my work is that I work alongside a lot of similarly passionate people and we provide a huge amount of support to each other. So I think we kind of catch each other when we fall and we all fall at different times. So we're kind of always there as a bit of a support network. Um, but I also think for me, what I hear back from victim survivors um, really makes it all worthwhile. So if I look back at an email or I remember something that someone said to me, I think, yeah, this is why I do it. It can be, you know, a really simple, you've just named this, this was my experience, I'm not alone. Maybe nothing can be done, but actually I just feel empowered to know that it wasn't me and that I'm not alone and that as a society we understand this issue a bit more. So mm. that makes a huge difference. It is, it is, I suppose, it's, you're not looking for adoration and awards and, and, and accolades in, in respect as it's, you're patting yourself on the head, haven't you, so that you've helped just one person. Yeah, it really is about sometimes. that. Yeah, and, you know, kind of with the job, when you talk about an issue that society has become more interested in and you're asked to do things like this podcast, um, you know, you know, or live television or something, it can be absolutely terrifying uh, you know, what are they going to ask me? Can I answer the questions? Um, but I always think to myself, you know what, if I've just helped one person, if just one person um, has become aware of this and is able to make a change um, that will have a really positive impact on their life, then it's worth it. Mm. So I kind of hold on to to the fact that it will make a difference to somebody somewhere. Do you ever sort of, when, you've ha when you have helped somebody, do you get to meet up with them or see them again? been a bit naive here admittedly but I mean do, does it sort of help and then you move on or well the organization I work for is informed by the experience of victims and survivors so we work alongside them to make sure that what we do is what other people need and so I have an ongoing relationship with some of those members because we do work alongside each other and I know sometimes um, when something really positive has happened for them so we're able to help them um, make a change that was needed sometimes they'll call me up so I think the last time someone like 7.30 in the morning and I was on the train in, on the way to work and said look I just want to let you know this I'm so excited um, so there are those really lovely moments that I was talking about where you think wow you know this is this is worth doing and it's worth being tired and it's worth being on a train at that time in the morning yeah. um, because it's actually making yeah a real difference and I remember this survivor saying to me um, actually for the first time I can breathe again you know and that's really powerful when someone says I, my life was on hold I couldn't see how I was going to move forward until this issue was resolved and you know, we don't do it for them. Um, survivors are strong people because they survive through what they've been through and they've been through the most awful things. But we can support them and we can um, help make the way a little bit easier. So it's lovely to know that you're kind of part of their journey and mm. you can be, you know, you can be thrilled for them and, yeah, then try not to cry in a carriage full of people. <laughs> 
Oh, that there's anything wrong with crying. No, I just sound like from this interview that I do it all the time. It's <laughs> <laughs> something my mum always told me. When I'm travelling. Like, let your emotions out. It doesn't matter if, you know, if somebody sees you crying and sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I suppose it goes back to this issue around abuse and there's a lot of shame and stigma still. Yes, exactly. But actually... I've never spoken to a victim or survivor who said that they didn't want someone to ask them if they were okay and they've never regretted speaking out um, because actually they found that the response has been more than they ever hoped for and it's really important because it gives them confidence to speak out to other people when they get a positive response so we should certainly be talking about how we feel. Mm. It, it, it does help in the long term not just for yourself but for others as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you, would, you, would you say that um, this is we're going back to the first question it's more than just a job isn't it There's mm. that if you were doing something that which had nothing to do with, with helping uh, victims of abuse that you'd still be doing this it sounds as though it is part of your psyche this isn't it I think so I think it's um, stuck with me for a long time and when I first started to speak to victims and survivors and economic abuse wasn't even recognised in policy or legislation and there was no research um, about it at all, I kind of put my toe in the water, I suppose, and then did some research in relation to it, started to develop a little bit of an evidence base that we could understand and respond better and worked in academia for a little while, um, undertook studies. So I did do some work for the Cooperative Bank and Refuge Charity to understand this issue a bit more, which underpinned an awareness raising campaign and led to a code of practice introduced by UK Finance. I was always kind of in the space um, and was always kind of waiting for an organisation or an individual to really make a difference. And it just felt that that wasn't coming and I had that moment one day and I thought you know what I'm still so interested in this I'm still spending my free time reading about it or researching or doing something Um, you know maybe I need to do that thing that I've been waiting for and so I set up the charity Surviving Economic Abuse it was terrifying because I you know left a full-time job economically I wondered how I was going to support myself Um, so it was a scary thing to do but it was also the best thing I've ever done and I just love every day every day brings some development um some news a difference that's made to an individual or a difference that an industry decides to make and it's just so hugely rewarding you almost feel the glow from you in in this it's i mean it's 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 great when you can help somebody isn't it you know if it's just one person you're helping many many people including through your associations like with the bank and, and uh, refuge and what uh, what's the magic wand moment for you what do you wish that you could fix or do in one sweep of a wand mm. i suppose looking to the future here yeah it's a massive question isn't it i think yeah for economic abuse to be unacceptable as physical abuse is now for people to really recognize it understand it know what the impact is and to say, no, we won't tolerate it and we'll support victims and we'll hold abusers accountable would probably be the the light at the end of the tunnel. But ultimately, obviously, for abuse not to happen, you know, to the extent that we don't tolerate it. So nobody has to experience any form of abuse, whatever, whatever that looks like. Nicholas Sharp, thank you so much for joining us on the Cooperative Bank podcast today. And 
I hope that we get to speak with you again at Thank some point. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast channel and be one of the first to know when new episodes are available. The Cooperative Bank Podcast for people with purpose. Thank you.